Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer. It's time that you get your own lawyer. This is one of the best ads I've seen in the other papers. You're my lawyer! Right, I'm your okay. lawyer. Okay. We have a lot to go over, and I have five minutes. Ring means go! You're going much faster than everybody else. Is she going to help us? It's always set your dreams high, Lucy. I don't think you realize what you're up against. you got to be firm on this. You have to fight for her. You don't know what it's like when you try and you try and you try and you don't ever get there! I can go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pfeiffer Fridays, where we walk you through the films of one Michelle Pfeiffer and every F-word automatically has a silent P. I'm Jerry Downey. And I'm Michael McLean. And today we are covering 2001's I Am Sam, starring Sean Penn, Dakota Fanning, Diane Wiest, Loretta Devine, Richard Schiff, Laura Dern, Mary Steenburgen, and of course, LaFeifer as Rita Harrison-Williams. Mr. McLean, this is one that you have seen before, correct? I think so. I really can't remember when I saw this. Maybe just like from a blockbuster rental or maybe on TV. I feel like the reason I was into it was because of Dakota Fanning. Right, I remember you saying that back on Married to the Mob. Yeah, because I was a little community theater child actor. And so to see another like child actor in a movie, I hadn't seen many of them at that point, like in an adult movie, was really exciting. And so I think I was tuned in because of her. And we can later on, we can talk about, there's like one scene that for some reason in this movie, there is a scene that's one of these like ad lives ad free in my mind for some reason from I am Sam. Couldn't tell you why. I have a guess. Okay. But anyway, so I think I've just, I saw this as a kid. So this is probably one of the very first Michelle Pfeiffer movies I ever saw. Didn't even know it. I don't think I was even watching for Michelle or anybody but Dakota Fanning to right. see her. But so I felt this was more like a first watch this time because I really saw the full story and went on the full journey, the full journey with this one. Whatever. Right, I, f- I feel like there has to be a, a pivot just because of how young you saw it at first, you're not going to grasp everything. It, it has to be a very different experience watching it as an adult. Yeah. I think I recognized Sean Penn was doing something. I think I recognized that he was acting and that this was a performance. I also registered that. I remember thinking that's different and that's really something's going on there not being able to pin down what it was that I was watching sure I remember that too but this was this is your first time with this one this is this is one of the few first watches I had left but um yeah I don't it it probably was my age at that point that this just wasn't a movie that was on my radar because mm-hmm. I would have been 13 yeah. when this came out. Would you, would you have been interested in this at 13? Do you think you would have heard about it? I know I heard about it. I distinctly remember this movie f- feeling in my 13-year-old head like it was a very big deal. Okay. And I remember 
how much of that from my perspective was revolving around Dakota Fanning yeah, and just that, holy fuck, this eight-year-old is giving this incredible performance. And it was it just, it felt like a big deal. But for some reason, it just, I, I don't know why this wasn't higher on my list, why, why I completely not only waited on it then, but then I remember it was a mainstay on TBS for what felt like years. And, and I never sat down to watch it then either. It was, and it wasn't like a purposeful avoidance. It was just one of those that I was just like, I'm, I'm not really in the mood for this one. Like I, I'll, I'll see this at some point. It's always going to be there. And, and now I have. Yes. I think with Dakota, with Dakota Fanning being such a, there's such a huge moment for her career that you forget about every other person in this movie besides the two of them. You know, Michelle is on the, whatever poster you end up seeing, she's on the poster. But I think she's even top billed alongside Sean Penn. But, mm-hmm. you know, this was never, I always forgot she was in this because it's, it was Sean and Dakota that took, the, that took all the focus. Right. This is not a Michelle Pfeiffer movie. No, in, in that not sense. like last week. Yeah. yeah. Not like Dangerous Minds. But um, yeah, where do you want to begin with this? Do you want to talk about the plot? Do you want to just give kind of a, rundown of that yeah I feel like I feel like we jumped head first into dangerous minds with no real plot summary last week um so yeah why don't we give a quick rundown of the plot do you want to take a go at this do you want me to I can't remember whose turn it is I think I last week I gave I definitely jumped in head first last week and just picked plot points when I wanted to talk about them in no particular order. <laughs> we, yeah, were, we were ready. We were ready for Dangerous Minds. Yeah. Um, so I Am Sam is about a, a guy named Sam who has a um, intellectual disability where he has, I guess you'd say the mental capacity of a seven-year-old that keeps being trotted out. That's pretty much the descriptor for Sam. And he, you know, is lives independently he has a home he has a job working at starbucks basically kind of a pseudo janitor role at starbucks and he impregnates a homeless a homeless woman and when the homeless woman gives birth to lucy which will ultimately played by dakota fanning that woman abandons sam and lucy at the hospital and so it's up to sam to really take care of this little girl with the help of his friends and his community of friends who are also mentally handicapped in some way. And he also has the help of his agoraphobic neighbor, neighbor Annie, played by Diane Weist, to help out. Those are his support systems. It's not clear. I don't think there's any social worker involved in this. It doesn't seem like there's any other support system for Sam other than Annie and his group of friends. And the job that he has at Starbucks. I guess that how this gets involved is he ends up getting inadvertently solicited for sex by by um at a food court, and which ends up being which ends up having him be arrested, and that's how Child Protective Services gets involved with clocking this guy, and then at one of Lucy's birthday parties, he is arrested and then separated. Is he arrested, or I guess? 
Lucy is separated from him. They make it seem like the SWAT team squirms on him at that birthday party. They, so, they really do. It's so rushed and intense for no reason. But so Lucy is separated from him. And the rest of the movie is him trying to get in contact. Not get in contact, but be reunited with Lucy and have permanent custody. He takes on um, Michelle's role, Rita, who is a lawyer. Rita takes on this case pro bono for Sam. And it's just his fight to gain custody. And it's a really messy custody battle. I think it's a really unnecessarily intense custody battle. I think it gets to some really, just some places that have no, that have no place good. It goes places that it no place that it has no place going to, you know, in this custody battle. Beats me how it's resolved in the end. But, you know, by the end of this movie, I imagine that Lucy and Sam are in a good place. Shrug. That, we don't know, really. Yeah, that although we're supposed to be happy about it, whatever whatever we take from the ending, it's supposed to be everyone's great. Yeah. Which is odd. Yeah. It's, it's an mm-hmm. odd ending. It comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And and everyone's fine. And it's just like, what the fuck did I just spend over two hours watching to earn this ending? Mm-hmm. Did I cover all the plot points though? Did I get most of it? I think I. I mean, yeah. Okay. I I think the only thing sort of in the middle of that is he does essentially lose custody. He loses his court case. Yeah, definitely. and then, then it turns into less custody and more him having to improve his life, for lack of a better word, in order to gain further access. Yeah, or 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 go toward another full-on custody battle, proving that he has improved and can support her. Yeah, and this is where the whole Laura Dern of of it becomes involved because she's the mother of the family that Lucy's placed in. This one was really, this one was tough. Um, not to get too personal on, not to get too personal at the gig, but um, so my mother has a cousin who is, um, I think we has the same, just intellectually, intellectually disabled as well. And he lives in a group home. He can't hold down a job really, just doesn't really have the mental capacity for it. And he, gets his benefits from the government. And his mother um, is very active in his life. He, as far as I know, it was a, it wasn't, it was a challenge, I imagine, raising my mom's cousin. But for the most part, he has a good life, as far as I can tell. And knowing that that's possible and that there are options out there for men and women in Sam's situation and my mom's cousin's situation. Seeing a movie like this, where I think it gets, it's so melodramatic and is so not indicative to me of a real experience for people like this. And now my mom's cousin doesn't have a child. I think that's the whole thing. I think that's the difference. But yeah, I still would hope that there would be more options for him. I, I don't I don't know I I guess I'm just not versed in how in what happens in a situation like this but 
I just felt like Sam was never given a chance or there was never, he was never given enough credit for the support system that he did have. Right. There was no, there was no glimpse given of a middle ground. It was either you stay as is and, and try to support a, a child who everyone is telling you is outgrowing you essentially, or you will not be able to help or you can't have her at all. Yeah. There, it, it, it was a very black and white scenario. I think in order to hit what this script feels are the emotional beats it wanted to hit, there couldn't be a gray area. It had to be black or white. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, you, you don't get a glimpse of whatever some sort of median would have have been that the median here is that you still don't have your child you can see them when we tell you you can i think that's really to the films really detriment that they don't accept that there's a gray area there's a lot to this film's detriment oh yeah do you want to start with any do, do we want to start with from the top down with sean or do you want to focus on michelle first or oh that's you know. a real that's a real coin toss Let's, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's kick it off with Michelle. Okay. That, that'll work. Who, who do we want to kick it off? <laughs> this is, this is Michelle's Nora Fanshawe. This is her lawyer for marriage story. You know, I just thought I had so many feels for her. Like maybe I, I was like, she's giving me marriage story vibes, honey. Um, I didn't think Michelle was playing this role as an ice queen. I think she's written as the as an as to be a real frigid one, but I don't think Michelle's playing her like that. I think she's just really stressed out. I would agree with you. I think Michelle is trying to imbue a lot of characteristics into this person that are not there on the page which is why it comes off as only serviceable for for me rather than a full-fledged performance is because they're just it's one of those where I can see her working at times Mm -hmm. and it's not a thing where I'm just like oh I'm watching her sweat because this isn't a natural fit it's just like you can see you can see the muscles tensing as she is trying to make this better than what she's been given. And I never can fully enjoy those because she is so naturally gifted. So when she has a script that is feels like it's actively working against what she can bring to the table, that's, a, that's always a very frustrating experience for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel that too often with this character. I wonder, did that feel... I'm thinking of moments where she has to communicate certain characteristics of her character. And what I'm, I guess what I mean by that is, I'm thinking of her, a lot of her, just re- the reaction shots that she gets, the, her compulsively needing, needing candy. Um, yeah. It feels, those to me, when you said that, when you said she's having to really make a house out of, you know, three pieces, three sticks of wood. Yeah. <laughs> To me, she's really having to let us know this is who this woman is. This is what I think she is. But the script doesn't really give her any 
any information about really how she thinks of, do you, do you think the script gives her an opinion about Sam? I almost think that maybe she's having to form that herself. Does that make any sense? It does. I actually think it's the dialogue that gets in the way of her performance mm -hmm. in this one, because I do like a lot of the business she gives, like you said. I think a lot of the reactions, especially at the top of the film, like how she treats her assistant, mm -hmm. um, sort of the unspoken relationship they have where you know she has probably slapped this assistant across the face at least seven times by now. Mm -hmm. um, but the way she's sort of communicating the assistant, like, please get the fuck in here and get him out of my office, but I'm really just raising my hand and now I'm playing with my hair. Yeah. Little things like that, I feel like gave her gave us a deeper understanding of this woman than anything that actually came out of her mouth, yeah. which is a problem. And, and it just, it just in terms of her feelings about Sam, I did not like how she sort of got embroiled into this one in the first place, because again, it felt like another very black and white moment for that character. Mm -hmm. Because she's almost guilted into taking on this case pro bono because mm -hmm. her co-workers are being words I shouldn't say on this podcast yeah and making her feel bad for being a successful lawyer yes mm -hmm. and it's just like y'all are literally in a room celebrating the win of what feels like a very big case meaning she is a, an uber successful person in this firm yeah yet all five of these bitches are just standing there choking on their food about the fact that she would take on a pro bono case because apparently she's some ice queen bitch in the office and that's beneath her it, it makes no sense yeah it's just like she's allowed yeah. to be successful why are y'all being heinous in a celebration <laughs> yeah that then makes her be like oh well clearly i should feel badly about this and i need to take on this it's it's odd it's it's an odd way of how she gets roped into this and it doesn't land yeah it's it's like she doesn't have to prove anything to anybody she just right. won this huge case you know it's not as if i did think that was very odd that she's having to save face in front of her colleagues when she has no i don't think she has any reason to do that well and the thing is this wouldn't have made it better none of these colleagues seemingly know that the client is mentally handicapped so they're not giving her grief about taking on a mentally handicapped client mm -hmm. which again would not be better but would have i think produced more of a sense of guilt in this particular character mm -hmm. that she's turning away someone in need yeah it's completely about oh well she's too good for pro bono it's just like is is that not allowed yeah it's the compassion that's missing from a lot of this movie towards i wish that that was her reasoning for it, that she felt guilty for turning away this man who was clearly in need and needs and needs right. assistance connecting of... with him as a parent even though that would take away the entirety of her journey pivot because apparently we're you know supposed to think that she is a person who can't have it all which again makes me so mad that <laughs> it's just like this person is a very successful lawyer meaning that she is a bad mother because she can't pay attention to her kid but yeah. she's going to learn how to be a good parent by taking on the case of this man yeah i don't like that 
No, it is so, it is so formulaic and simplistic and insulting (laughs) that that is the lesson that she needs to learn is that she is an awful, she cannot be a good parent and a successful lawyer at the same time. Yeah. Because she even says at the end, she's tanked her career over this case. It's just like, well, at least you learned that you can go to a soccer game with your son. Glad, glad we got, glad we got there. Imagine how tired we are. I feel like I just reached into your head and unplugged something. Oh my God. You, you never, you weren't even moving. <laughs> you were just staring down. I thought your screen had frozen. I'm like, oh my, my God. God. I unplugged Michael's Ethernet cable. <laughs> he lost his Wi-Fi connection. Um, there is a Michelle scene later. We're jumping so far ahead. Although maybe we need to go back. I think she's good in, what, what do you think in, of her in the courtroom scenes when she's having to balance keeping, keeping Sam quiet and also still pleading her case? Again, serviceable. Mm-hmm. Because they've given, her character is paced very oddly because she warms up to him very late in the game. I think so too. I think it's, I think she warms up to him too late. I would agree because you see her, you see her natural want to sort of try and give this, this woman some likability working against the dialogue she's given in the courtroom scene. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we've, we have certainly seen Michelle lean into unlikable characters I think she starts getting more comfortable with that directly after this one with White Oleander. And then a lot of the ones she's played more recently, she seems very happy to lean into the darkness. Not that Rita is a dark character, but I think if, I think if Michelle had maybe been just a little more comfortable making her unlikable and seeing her thaw for that, immense length of time we have until she seems to start warming up to Sam Mm -hmm. it would be different but in the courtroom scene it feels like there's there's a few they've put a few too many chess pieces on her board that they're expecting her to move all on her own Mm -hmm. and it winds up working against her in those scenes Mm -hmm. I I don't think that they are a particularly strong showing for her yeah because for so much of this movie I really thought that there would be an earlier an earlier point where she would, yeah, maybe connect as a parent, that she would find a way to get out of her, get out of almost like her lawyer brain and just be a bit of a human. Because I think by like, even by the hour and a half mark, if I'm, if I'm thinking of this, thinking of it right, it still feels like she's in, she's dealing with I hate to say normal, but I feel like she needed to take a different tack with this man and get on a different level where I just, I'm thinking again of the, of the scenes where she's interviewing his friends and just, she's realizing that she's not really going to be able to get one of them truly focused enough to give her what the case needs. And she's just sitting there like she's just can't believe she's been, she's styled herself with this. I feel like she's she's there in that headspace 
maybe until when Sam kidnaps Lucy, kidnaps, quote unquote, leaves with Lucy from one of their um, the chaperone visits. Right. Yeah, I just, I was really tired of her getting, being in this, in this lawyer mindscape. Like, no, you've got to, you've got to do this differently. Saying, I, I think the pivot happens even later than that. I don't think she starts settling in until she's helping him prep for court. Yeah. And that is, that is what I consider when, her strongest scene. When she's, when he comes to her house, basically. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, that yeah. gives her a lot of tools that they hadn't given the character before. It's odd that they, they really want to treat this movie as an ensemble piece mm-hmm. and they whiff it on every single level mm-hmm. because yeah. they really I think they would like to have this be a movie that is somewhat about community, but they only allow mm. each person, even each person that isn't Sam, only really one moment to sort of come alive. They, they do the same thing with Diane Wiest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and strangely, I don't think that that scene where she's helping him prep for court is what they expected to be her strongest scene. Mm-hmm. I think they really thought her best one was when she has that breakdown post court and is talking mm-hmm. about, you know, how she's not as perfect as she is. I think she's stronger in the court prep scene. Okay. Is it when she lands in the suit? Is that, that's the court prep scene or it's, it's in that. It's the entire thing. It's when she brings, she brings him to the house she has that harried phone call with her husband and winds up binge eating marshmallows, which was adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's when she's uh, she's connecting with him. It's when she's um, pretending like she's Mr. Turner and he keeps laughing at her. And like, she just seen that that's the one time where she seems to have a really genuine connection with him, both as a character and as a performer. It just has a very different vibe than than the rest of the film not just for her but between the two of them that i thought was was lovely because for so many of the scenes it seems like she's just barely tolerating him or really or just are so embarrassed to be in presence that's exactly the word i used several times in my notes was tolerant and i think besides i would say the people that really with their sam's friends there's Lucy and there's, I think, Diane Weist. I think even Mary Steinberg in her one little scene. Those are the characters to me that give Sam the full range of tolerance and respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just wanted to kind of, I would never want to hurt Michelle Pfeiffer, but I wanted to, you know, slap Rita herself in the face sometimes with some of the shit she was, even Richard Schiff, even Laura Dern at times, it's like, just their intolerance or lack of compassion at times unnerved me. And I think maybe that was the, was that the film's point that there are, that there are going to be? Maybe, but I, again, I don't see this as a black and white issue. And I feel like, especially with someone like Richard Schiff's character, it's so difficult that this script villainizes that character despite the fact that they are making true 
statements. Mm -hmm. You know, what we've seen, and especially the fact that even though they really want him to be the, the primary antagonist of this movie, they also give him dialogue where he makes it very clear that he is not here to fight for the parents. He is there to fight for the children. He sees children come through this, this system so often. That is his primary focus. And so the words coming out of this care of Richard Schiff's character's mouth do not match this just sort of mustache twirly villainy they, they bring him to at points. And it's, again, I don't understand why this movie couldn't have explored a grayer area. Yeah. I feel like that would have helped it, helped it just find some depth because that's what it's missing. It is, it is a very good versus evil tale. And that's not what it, what a case like this would be. No, not for something this thorny that has a lot of different areas you can explore. It really oversimplifies it. And, and that is, that is a problem. I, I feel like just in terms of its storytelling. Yeah. I even think Laura Dern gets that mustache twirling treatment. Maybe not to the extent of Richard, but um, Richard Schiff. But there are times when I felt like she was. I think that's what makes the that character's one eighty at the end. So, like, well, where did this come from? Because for the few scenes that we get, it seems like she's. She even says at one point, when Lucy, kind of escapes from, from her foster home and, somehow makes her way across town a few blocks away to Sam's apartment, which, Jesus, um, when Sam brings her back the first time, Randy totally says, give me, give me my daughter. Yeah. And then she, she check, checks herself, but yeah, there are times I was like, I feel like even Laura's battling, you know, I think I'm a villain here, but I also think I'm just a foster parent doing right by this child that has been that has been given to me to take care of yeah just a very a, a, a push and pull with that character too I think I feel like what they do with like the problems we have with their pacing of Rita's character they also do to Randy but mm-hmm. in 30 minutes rather than two sure. hours I about to say it's like we get the sped up version of that because <laughs> you do at least you see her having this affection for Lucy mm-hmm but yeah. then it's as soon as she's around Sam, where again, instead of exploring some sort of gray area, they do attempt to villainize her. Like Sam is sort of this patron saint of this film. So if you were going against his interests, you must be a bad guy. And then, you know, she has this magic awakening at, at some point and... Yeah and and says you know i'm i'm going to tell the judge that you can provide the better home to which he says well she really could use a mother figure do you want to stick around never never explored after that (laughs) but they're all at the soccer game don't forget the soccer game michael oh well well yeah by the soccer game it's all solved we're fine all of it yeah because soccer, because soccer, what brings you together? Okay, I have a question for you. Sure. In terms of just again, sort of the storytelling of this. Mm-hmm. 
I was very surprised that the court case ended and we still had 40 minutes of this movie left. Yeah. Because so much of this seemed built around the custody case, the relationship between Sam and Rita, which all sort of stems from this part of the story. Do you think it would have been a stronger movie had even if he lost the court case, it sort of ended slightly more ambiguously? Like maybe if if we had been able to find a gray area for this ending where he is able to see Lucy, where we see her grow up a little bit or just something, if, if we didn't continue forward from the court case, mm-hmm. do you think that would have been a tighter, stronger movie? Or do you like this sort of, 40 minute epilogue we have after that. I think it would have been a stronger movie. I around the, the around the 40 minute epilogue time is where my attention was starting to be like, okay, where are we going with this? Because what you said earlier really it points to the whole the black and white mode that the film is in. Sam is Sam is the hero of the film. And I think that is totally fine. I think yes. he should be the hero of this film. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary to have another further struggle for him to go through with now Lucy is in a foster home and he's working to better his life. That felt to me, yeah, just unnecessary. And again, just points to more, this is a black and white issue. This Sam has to better himself in order to get his daughter back. It's, I just don't, I don't think we need another quest after this. It's, you know, I think if you had just leaned into the fact that his arrangement with Lucy is going to be really different than it was and that he'll still have his support system and, you know, they will still be finished with each other's lives, but it's just going to be really different from now on. Yeah, I'm, I'm mildly baffled just thinking back on it, especially listening to your synopsis of the movie how much of these plot points are just silly and could have been completely eradicated and still tied tied back to what it needs to be because the thing that they keep harping on about sam in court is when he lays hands on one of the other children oh yes Uh uh-huh And so that still would have happened. And we've established that the father of this child is an asshole. So my question in that respect is, did we need this incredibly cringy scene of this hooker picking him up in a bar or not a bar, food court, whatever, leaning into this police station scene where the cop flat out tells Loretta Devine's character, who is the social worker, this is the first time I've seen a man who generally, genuinely could not know that this was a hooker, let mm-hmm. him go. And then have that be sort of the inciting incident that never crops up again. Just have asshole dad re- report him for, ha- for laying hands on the kid. Yeah. And that's the one you keep bringing up. Mm-hmm. It just feels like there were certain plot points that they really just wanted to use as dominoes. I think it was maybe a little bit of a, I'm thinking of that scene with the hooker, you know, is it exploitative a little bit where we have to see Sam 
getting patted down in the food court. And, you know, Sean Penn Yelsey touched me in my private place. It feels like a bit of a moment to really humiliate this character. Yeah. For no reason. But I think they wanted him to be, for some reason, our screenwriters wanted him to be in this humiliating position, which to me is no bearing other than to just, it's just, it's an exploitive tactic, I think. I don't think it's really. Particularly because we're already on his side. Yeah. You, you don't need to push us any further in that direction. We've had these really touching scenes between him and his daughter. Yeah. You, we, you don't he's, need he's to. Man. We know he's, you know. Yeah. And sort of by that same token, I feel like they have sort of, I don't want to use the word martyred, but they, they, they do sort of, again, make him this, this pinnacle. Um, so I think the reason why we have that epilogue is because they have told the story in a way where it is, they are not going to be happy with the ending unless he winds up back as her father. But it also makes no sense that he would have won that court case so therefore what do we need to add to this story to make him so that right so that it's a realistic court case that he absolutely has to lose but Mm -hmm. still winds up being her father again i'm telling you jesse nelson my nemesis jesse nelson for those who are for those from remember our story of us episode she was one of the co-writers of the story of us one of our favorite movies that we've talked and, about. And she is the times. director and co-writer of I Am Sam, meaning I uh, don't trust her with any ending ever. Yeah. We should have known. We should have known. And I hate because we need more women directors. They, I hate to badmouth her directing, but it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite either, but I will give credit to one very particular scene that I thought was well executed, which is when at the top of the movie, when Sam is shopping for diapers. Did you like that? Michael, I didn't like much. So no, I'm not going to go that far. But what I give credit is that it did feel like there was an attempt with the directorial choices of what was happening in that scene of showing how disoriented putting us in his shoes for a second when sort of the aisles were spinning around him and he's having to make all these choices about things he knows nothing about in in terms of buying diapers and formula for his infant daughter. I I thought it was a a, a well-realized choice for that moment. Uh, Everything past that is pedestrian at at, at best, it, it serves the story they're wanting to tell, but it's not, it's not very exciting direction. Yeah. I think it was just the lighting of that scene that I think so much of the lighting in this movie feels to me like we're in a fish tank. So. Well, it's because whenever he's with Lucy, we're in warm lighting. Sure. And when Lucy's away from him, we're in very icy blue. Sure. Again, manipulative. Don't, I, I think it's a little bit too, it just felt a little bit too, if that's what we were going for, cool. I just think it's a little bit on the nose for me. I don't, some oh. of it just, I just, it's so distracting. I'm not defending it at all. 
Okay. Not, not Listen, remotely close. Like, I was like, are you, did you like that? Can I say? <laughs> no, it is, it is very hammering it into you from the top that it's just like, we are now in a bad place because it's blue. I'd agree with you about the disorientation though. I think it's just the lighting that just really, I think if we had just had that scene and just normal crush, normal babies are us lighting, you know, I think we could have, the point would have been perfectly made. And I think even once, you know, once Lucy's mother abandons them at the bus station, the bus stop, I think that's when kind of the disorientation seems to go. And so as, as we see Lucy growing up with Sam, taking care of her, it does feel like we're going, it's like a merry-go-round. Yeah. That is how it feels. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think that's a good a way to show the, the, this passage of time. I think that's a very good way to film that. You know, I imagine this whole experience for Sam, these, these six years were extremely disorienting and were quite a merry-go-round. And I don't think we needed the lighting to really hammer that home. I think we got it. But yeah, I'd agree with you then that, you know, everything after that is pretty much just straightforward. Yeah. I think the one scene that I really baffled me why they filmed it like this, maybe it was a, a Michelle against her, against her office, see you next Tuesdays. You know, for some reason you have this kind of, kind of medium-ish shot on her coworkers, then you would cut back to close-up of Michelle, medium shot of the coworkers. I was like, just put them in the same frame together or something. I don't know. The, just the whole, when you realize what, when Michelle's realizing, okay, I'm going to do this case pro bono, it's very much like a, just a jar, a jarring decision that's being filmed. I was like, what in the world was that about? Mm -mm. I don't, I don't like those scenes with her coworkers. And luckily we don't get a ton of them, but that one for sure, that one was really not pleasant. To no. I don't want to forget about, we talked about Diane Weist, but I do think that her testimony, even Mary Steenburgen's testimony too, I think are some of the more grounded performances. I, I made the note that this movie does not deserve what Diane Weist is giving it. It's hard to describe. You know, I've never been able to really describe Dan, Diane Weist's acting in a good way. I think the way she is able to be so real and natural on screen is one of her gifts and how she just, just comports herself on that stand, even when Richard Schiff takes that really low blow at her and how she, and how she breaks down compared to almost Michelle's breakdown, mm -hmm. compared to her breakdown, how her eyes just kind of crinkle up and she has to turn away that to me is, you know, really exceptional. Diane Weist always feels like even when she takes on characters with more eccentricities, mm -hmm. she's able to even make sort of the most wackadoodle choices feel like they're, feel like someone you've met yeah. or someone you know. She always sort of makes those choices feel. Very organic. Yeah, very, very lived in. And that and that's that's what she brings to this character because Annie is severely agoraphobic. She she doesn't even want to be on the stand aside from helping Sam because she doesn't like leaving her home. 
but even her her earlier scenes you i think you get a very different sense of who she is when she's first calls sam and it's just like why is there a baby crying <laughs> you kind of think she's going to be sort of the no-nonsense bitchy neighbor next door yeah and then immediately that turns on a dime and she's kind of surrogate grandmother mm -hmm. to, to annie is how they make her feel and she even if she's not given a lot to do what she's given she manages to craft this really nice through line with all of this character's baggage built into it wherever she's featured it's really beautiful work from her yeah. i think so is it do we, is it time to move on to sean and dakota yeah let's do it i know i wasn't like this at eight years old when i was doing my little plays but it's her listening it's the fact that she's listening Yes. She's listening and responding. The biggest thing of acting, listening and responding, Dakota knew how to do that at a very young age. And she, I mean, especially that scene in the beginning when I think when they're at IHOP. And I think she says, you're not like other daddies, that little speech she has. Yeah. I don't think many eight-year-olds could have done that. And of course, like as an adult, you're thinking, oh, she's realizing why her dad is different, but she quickly follows it up with, you don't see other daddies going to the park. And it's just like, that is one of the genuinely heartwarming moments in this movie is that little scene of scene of hers. That one got me a little bit just because it is so, just so, just so genuine. You're watching this little girl who, who loves her dad. It's, it's yeah. really sweet. And you're absolutely right because there are some, I feel like there are some kids' performances that are helped an enormous amount by the director and by the editor. Mm -hmm. And they're really, there aren't many reaction shots. They're really just sort of cut down to the barest bones in order to make this performance feel perfect. And we've already said the direction of this one ain't great. So like this really does feel like like you said, there are tons of reaction shots of her. You really do get this sense that she is the adult in the situation. And a lot of that comes from her performance rather than the screenplay or the direction. We've talked about so many characters' thorny moments that don't feel very, that don't feel like they connect with the script or vice versa. With, with Lucy's, I felt she, I don't say she had every right to feel the way she's feeling, um, but her moments, her reactions that were maybe sometimes a little bit more prickly, like when she's on one of her chaperone visits and she yells, she knows that the uh, that the social worker are behind the um, the social workers are behind the mirrored glass. When she yells at them, you know, did you hear that? Um, that scene, get what she yeah. says. When she lies on the stand initially, or when she lies in the deposition. And then when Sam doesn't show up for a few days, for a few visits, when she's living with Randy and she's kind of beating at Sam saying, I hate you, I hate you. I think we would have wanted to see a kid who was just kind of took it all in stride. I, I'm sure that's what, I think we maybe would have typically seen a kid that just took it all in stride and was the happy-go-lucky kid. We wouldn't have seen any, any bucking against a situation. Um, we wouldn't have seen her being embarrassed by her father 
but we do see that yeah, we yeah. see her especially like at bob's big boy or when when they're reading when they're trying to read stella luna and they're having a hard time with the words and she has that she realizes that oh i'm going to be in a different place in my with than my dad is that's where we kind of get more of the gray area almost with lucy where we get to see dakota fanning find those shades and they I don't know if that, that was directed by Jesse um, or if she just, her and Sean figured that out together. I don't know, but I was really impressed with how she um, loved her dad so much, but still really had those peaks and valleys for character. Yeah. You know, she felt kind of in a, in a performance that gets brought up a lot or at least a movie that gets brought up a lot in this movie it reminded me of how i felt watching justin henry and kramer versus kramer yeah the first time i ever watched that it feels very similar like you are not watching you're not watching a child performance that's hemmed in by you're not watching a pawn yeah if that makes sense again some idealized little toddler that you're supposed to fall in love with you're watching a child that's having what feels like real life responses to really yeah. outstanding situations yeah. i think probably dakota fanning as a child actress was just so vastly more mature for her age and so i think was able to grasp so much so i think that helps as well her mental capacity yeah um you could always tell from those movies when she was a, a little kid that she was wise beyond her years as they say um <laughs> And yeah, and then with Sean Penn, I think now in 2021, this would have never happened. <laughs> Although I say that, look at what just happened with Sia's movie music. So it's still happening. I think now we're just more, I think we're still getting there in terms of the film industry of making sure that these roles are played if, if a role calls for somebody with a, dis with a disability or an impediment, having an actor with that disability play that part, I think we're getting there. But I think back in 2001, would this movie have been made if we didn't have a huge movie star? No, but I also, I, I feel like the creation of this movie in 2001 was well-intentioned in order to tell the story of yeah. somebody with an, an, an intelligence disability. Mm -hmm. It also just sort of feels like that road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Cliche at, at the same time, because I don't, I don't love Sean Penn's performance in this. No. And I, I don't know. It was just one of those that I kept watching and I kept thinking in my head like, oh, I bet in 2001, this was one of those performances that everyone was just like, this is so brave. Yeah, probably was. And, yeah, and, and brave, especially like, I'm sorry, it always happens towards leading actor performances that mm -hmm. are deemed brave that I'm just mm -hmm. like, choke please mm -hmm. like no <laughs> it's it's not yeah they're they're acting they've they've accepted this role they're doing it it's yeah. not no one's forcing them to do this is they're not being held at gunpoint right 
Right. And so I, yeah, it just, it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I will give credit. This is the credit I always give, even when I don't like a performance, it is a consistent performance. Yeah. So, you know, con- consistent choices from beginning to end, mm-hmm. fine. It's, ju- it's just not a performance I like. It's not a performance that I feel has aged particularly mm-hmm. well. and I don't necessarily blame him or his performance I think there are a lot of a lot of factors for why I this would not happen I feel like this is yet another movie that is really expecting you to respond in a certain way emotionally Mm -hmm. and I never really did like I said there were some moments at the top with Lucy that got to me but I'm I'm a sucker for sweet kids in in movies that will always sort of punch me in the gut when it lands correctly but you there's there are several plot points later in the film that you can tell are supposed to just leave you a weepy mess on the floor and they they didn't get there for me and i think because sean plays it is that consistent so committed to doing it i think you're never really given that uncomfortable feeling that you're watching an actor play so far out of his depth I think maybe another actor taking this on would have just it would have felt so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and just would not have um landed well at all but I think because Sean is a very committed and I think he's a talented actor um I think because of his talent he's able to just stay the course and play this part and um, do the job. I think that's, a, that's to his credit. I think it could have been much worse. I think we've gotten a much worse performance, I think, from another actor. Yeah, I, I would agree. I feel like this is a, this is a, a role, especially when you're not really given the best screenplay that had what I can only assume are a lot of minefields involved with it and he does manage to again just deliver a consistent and committed performance that whether you like it or not at least it yeah yeah another favorite moment i'm going back to michelle i was looking through my notes and i saw that um one of my favorite moments of hers was um battling her her phone in the car (laughs) I, i just realized that um that phones back in 2001 you could do the voice do commands the, do the voice commands. yeah I, I didn't either didn't i was like my mom never had a phone like that but um just at this point when calling office home home <laughs> that tickled me i like that detail in her performance i also will yeah. say that one michelle moment i really did enjoy that this film gave us is when she full-on kicked a door in Oh yeah. In heels, no less. She braced herself on that railing and boom. <laughs> Kicked that door in. I, en- I enjoyed that moment yeah, quite, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, so sort of circling, since, since we've now covered Sean, let's come full circle on that. Because I kind of brought it up earlier and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. How did you feel about her quote unquote big moment, her, her breakdown scene? It maybe had shades of her. It's not as manipulative as her 
big breakdown in the story of us. I think she, she, I think it's fine. I thought she, for what the script gave her, she does it well, I think. I think she's had better breakdowns. Yeah, I thought it was fine. What did you think about it? It it did give me shades of story of us. Like I just, <laughs> I don't know why in the midst of this, I started thinking back to when has Michelle cried on screen? And did I like buy it? Because the story of us and this again, big moment and this one really seemed to ask her to get very big and histrionic very quickly mm -hmm. rather than having any sort of Intern and right and in internalizing of it and just sort of letting it lead to this sort of quieter crying or doing what she does best which is trying to hold back the tears and that's how they come as sort of from keeping them inside mm -hmm. and I realized that the only one where she really goes big that works for me that popped in my head was her liaison scene that's what I was thinking too I think which that's her as we remember, we both love. She is great in that breakup scene. Yeah. But that also seems to be just a better paced and have a better build it than these. It feels like with this one, the direction was, okay, here's your monologue. Start crying and yelling about 30 seconds in. That gives us 90 more seconds of screaming and yelling and crying. Can we can we do that? Yeah. And I think that I think that boxes her in in a way that makes her vulnerability seem less natural, yeah. which is a shame because she really can do sad vulnerability like nobody's business. Yeah, I was looking back through our list and I think dangerous liaisons is a big earned cry. Thinking of you're talking about where she's holding it in like her kind of restraint in the age of innocence or even in personal effects. Or even to something more recent, her, her lovely monologue in Married to the Mob. Yeah. And yeah, that's her sweet spot of the holding it in, restraining. That's really where you buy it the most. But I think when, they, when a director asks her to fully break down, I think she could do it if you had the proper steps in place to get to that level. Right. Because I think... I mean, for most people, I don't think, it's been a while since I've had a breakdown, but I don't think, I know I, you know, you have to build up to that point. Right. I think as humans, I don't know if we automatically burst into sobs or really just go zero to 60. And I think that's something you could have achieved with Rita. I yeah. think even at her most basic building blocks, she would not have shown her cards that fast even to someone she had built a relationship with like sam mm -hmm. i think she still would have been trying to keep it on lock and keep it quieter yeah. um they want her to just especially even when she's outside sam's door they want her to just be a bat out of hell immediately and i think yeah i'd love more levels there with that because yeah. that's her big that's her big moment that's her clip as it were that's exactly what i thought i'm just like this would have been her oscar clip i mean even i guess if you, when you're asking your character to break down a door 
maybe that's maybe they're like, well, you that's where you know you have to come from in order to be able to break down a door. Yeah, she was she was already in a tizzy at the top of that scene before she kicked in the door. And I feel like that's especially when they're not in the same room, that felt like the only way Rita really knew how to communicate that this was a dire situation was yelling um, to hopefully get Sam to open the door. Mm-hmm. But once she's inside and once the conversation gets much more personal and not even personal about him, personal about her, to have that be so so large and not and, and nowhere in inside her, it, it just, it doesn't work. I almost would have liked them to just stay on their opposite sides of the, uh, of the little thing Sam made, the paper sure. construction. You know, she does a very, again, a little bit too on the nose where she breaks down the paper construction to bridge the gap between them. I almost would have preferred maybe they stay on those sides and she maybe said that shared her feelings through the hole yeah you know i think because the the filming of those scenes where you just see their eyes through the hole in the construction i thought that was really interesting i think to have the hole where they both break down some walls without breaking down having to break down a physical wall yeah could have been nice and said but no but no we had to She's breaking down a wall. So literally, Michelle, just break down the wall. That's what it felt like. <laughs> Have a physicalization. <laughs> so since we just brought up Oscar clips, yeah. this also kind of ties back to what we said at the top of the episode. This is not a Michelle Pfeiffer movie. No. Uh, as far as awards conversation goes, this was wholly surrounded by Sean Penn and Dakota Fanning. I, th- I think that was unavoidable with how big the press was around Dakota Fanning. Mm-hmm. But I, I wondered if she were to be campaigned, I wonder if we did some digging, if we could find some for your consideration ads. I'm wondering if studios push Michelle Pfeiffer lead and think they can get away with it because she is above the title, even though she is absolutely a supporting character in the story mm-hmm. yeah. or do they try to push her supporting along with Dakota Fanning knowing she will not get in she's not getting in regardless at least in my book because I, I don't think this is a nomination worthy performance but I am wondering where the coin toss lands on where she's campaigned I think I bet they would have done for they would have wanted to do it lead because child performers usually get the supporting slots Right. So even though, because this story is so largely Lucy's as well as Sam's, I don't know if I would have even, I don't know if I would have campaigned Dakota in lead. Probably not. I think she's always going to be in supporting. But yeah, probably just for above the title purposes, Michelle's probably in lead. And Dakota Fanning became the youngest SAG nominee. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Who is who was she up against that year? Let me see how much SAG. Yeah, how much they overlapped that year. Right. Okay. Oh. Oh, I forgot that this is when SAG had like zero overlap with Oscar. Okay. So 
Oscar, we had our two Gosford Park ladies, which were Helen Mirren and Maggie Smith. Mm-hmm. Winner Jennifer Connolly, who I believe was pushed lead at SAG for Beautiful Mind. Uh, Marissa Tomei for In the Bedroom. And was Kate, Kate Winslet yeah. for yeah. Iris. And then at SAG, the winner was Helen Mirren for Gosford Park, the only overlap for Oscar. Yeah, and then we okay. had Kate Blanchett for Bandits, Judy Dench for The Shipping News, Cameron Diaz for Vanilla Sky, and Dakota Fanning for I Am Sam. Whoa. Now, can That's you believe wild. it? Wild. Can you believe it? I've seen The Shipping News. I have seen Vanilla Sky. I have seen Gosford Park. I have seen I Am Sam. Now, I have not seen Kate Blanchett and Bandits. I mean, I would have, I would have given it to Helen Mirren. I mean, she'd be my Oscar winner. I think we were always on the same page about that, where she, she should be, if she, I think she can have two Oscars, but I would like her first one to have been for Gosford Park. Yes, I would. I, I will say with full sincerity that I think I would prefer Helen Mirren's Oscar to be for Gosford Park instead of the Queen. Whoa, what a wild SAG category. Who was in lead in that year for leading actress? With, did Jennifer Connelly get? I'm I'm fairly certain that's why she wasn't there. Yeah. So Halle Berry actually did win SAG as she did the Oscar for Monsters Ball, and then we had, oh, crazy. So the only Jennifer Connelly took Nicole Kidman in Moulin Rouge's place at SAG. <gasps> Whoa. Because the other the other three are exact crossovers it was barry judy dench for iris sissy spacek for in the bedroom and zell wegger for bridget jones and then jennifer Connolly for beautiful mind was their fifth instead of nicole kidman and moulin rouge wow that's crazy okay hold please because okay no they nominated moulin rouge for outstanding performance by a cast so they definitely saw it okay interesting okay jesus lord okay Cool, 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 cool. Shenanigans, Sag, shenanigans. We're really wanting to jump in a conversation about better movies from 2001. We need to stay on course. Uh, (laughs) um, Now, I haven't seen... It's been years since I saw Iris. I would be loath to give a Kate Winslet nomination away, but maybe in this case. Have you seen that recently, Jerry? I have within the past year and a half. And did you take this away from Kate? I did not like Iris, like on any front. Okay. It okay. cemented my feelings that Jim Broadbent was nominated and won for the wrong performance that year. It should have been his Moulin Rouge performance and not Iris. Yeah. And it's one of my least favorite Kate Winslet performance I've seen. Huh. I know recently I've seen people that think it's one of her best nominations. And to that, I say Le Shrug because did not a damn thing for me. So, but I also, I really don't like Jennifer Connelly and Beautiful Mind either. I've heard more that she, that people really don't care for her win. Yeah. Like Gosford, my Gosford Park ladies, you could fill that entire category from Gosford Park. And I would say, great, sure. good, good job. And then Marissa Tomei is, exceptional in in the bedroom so i would so in this year we have two slots to fill i guess i'm in our indigenous history so if we nixed kate and jennifer would you want to put dakota 
I need to go back and rewatch some of the other movies, but I would be absolutely fine with her being up there. I think she is the best performance in in the movie and is a would be a fully deserved no. nominee. Yeah, I think so too. If we can nominate Quavonjane Wallace at six years old, we can nominate Dakota Fanning at eight years old. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I would too. If, if we took some ladies out and shuffled it around, totally. I think she would be a good, worthy nominee. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, not for, I wouldn't nominate this for, nominate Michelle for this one. No, it just, yeah, it's just not, a, it's it's not a well-written enough character mm-hmm. for, for it to be warranted. Yeah. Would you recommend this one to Pfeiffer fans at all to see? No. I, I think there are some things to recommend about the movie. Yeah. But it was not, it's, it's at least 30 minutes too long. And I don't, I usually I do not care about time length until the movie starts to feel too long and I care about time length when the movie ends <laughs> not before I start the movie. Yes. Yeah. But I I can't recommend this wholly based on the Pfeiffer roller performance. No. So that's that's my caveat. Yeah. I would say this one's a skip for a Pfeiffer fan. It's not one that I think you will be missing from your life. I don't think it's an essential one. I remember the scene though that plays ad free in my yeah. mind. From from what you from when you were sort of going through a rundown of her scenes earlier, I get the feeling my guess was going to be wrong because I was going to guess it's the scene where he shows up at the foster home and she's saying, I hate you, I hate you. But is that incorrect? No, I don't think you're even you're gonna you're gonna wonder why this has been in my head for the past 20 something years. It's the shoe store scene when they're when they're picking out the shoes. And maybe it's because I was just obsessed with The Wizard of Oz as a kid, but one of Sam's friends who recites film stats, he's, he has the pair of red shoes. He says, these are similar to the ones worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, directed by Victor Fleming. I have on a loop in my head, The Wizard of Oz, directed by Victor Fleming, like that line in my head, I'm like him holding up the pair of red shoes. That's been in my... That's what I always associate first with this movie is that random scene in the shoe store. Maybe it's because they were name dropping the Wizard of Oz and I was obsessed with the ruby slippers as a kid. Of course. I think that's why. That's I asked horrible. For, I asked for ruby slippers every Christmas and I never got them. I'll, I'll send you some this year. Thank you. We have to go to <laughs> Oz to get them, I guess. So I haven't been to Oz yet. So but yeah, that's the scene that's been playing that always plays in my head. <laughs> Whenever I think of I am Sam, I think I'd be, I think we'd be great friends with that, with the one who recites the lines from Kramer versus Kramer and knows all those film stats. Oh yeah. (laughs) It would be never ending. We would just, I think we would just get going and I don't think we'd ever stop talking about movies with him. Yeah. That's a, that's a rabbit hole waiting to happen. Yeah. So anything else I am Sam related before we move on to the six degrees? Um, a great a great idea from Diane Weist in how she um it's been the beginning when Sam first brings Lucy home and um she asks she says you know is Lucy on a feeding schedule yet 
And so she has a brilliant idea of timing the feeding schedule to Nick at Night reruns. You know, when, you know, when this show ends, feed her. And then when I Dream of Jeannie comes on, that's when you stop. And then, you know, you pick it up again later with this show. Such a fun detail. And again, a beautiful stroke from Diane, stroke of genius in Diane Lee's performance. Yeah, no, I, I, I liked that too. I wrote that down. Uh, so listeners, if you are joining us for the first time, we end every episode with a little game we like to call Six Degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer. And that is where we give each other an actor or actress and have to connect them back to Michelle Pfeiffer via other actors and actresses in Six Degrees or less. Michael, do you want to give or receive first? I'll receive first. Okay. I don't think we've done this person, but if so, just yell at me. Okay. We're on episode 39. So, you know. I'll throw my um, I'll throw my jelly beans at you. Yeah, allow me to forget. I am giving you Audrey Hepburn. Okay. Ooh. He was Audrey Hepburn in, there was like a, it was like one of his first things. She was in Wait Until Dark with somebody. Yeah. And I can't remember his friggin' name. But I know he was somebody. (laughs) Yeah, he's a recent, uh, recent, I should say. He is an Oscar winner from this century. it's going to be 10 degrees of separation if I go I was thinking of like in the you're doing 17 degrees of Michelle Fife oh my gosh Um, mm. do you want me to give you the tiniest of hints in one direction or another sure that'll be great because yeah I'm coming up a little bit blank on my names today Uh, Do you want me to push you in the direction of that Wait Until Dark co-star or another direction? Give me the Wait Until Dark co-star. So he was a Best Supporting Actor winner. Okay. In a kind of sleeper hit family dramedy that may have involved Van. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Alan Arkin? Yes. That's who it was. Wow. Okay, that makes sense now. That, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> I thought of somebody much, not that Alan all, not that Alan Arkin isn't a, you know, a dapper man in his own right. But I was I thinking I, I had my mind on somebody like a little bit hunkier in that time period for some reason. There, um, who is her? Is it Richard Crenna that's the hot? burglar and that one alan arkin's like the big bad okay in wait until dark but there is a a hotter there's a hotter one of the trio i think that's richard krenna who's okay. who's mike all right let me see so if i go in the wait until dark direction so oh yeah so <laughs> this is a good one so we can so audrey hepburn was in wait until dark with alan arkin who was in Little Miss Sunshine with Abigail Breslin, who was in New Year's Eve with Michelle. She sure was. She, yeah. 
She sure was. <laughs> she sure was in the New Year's Eve. <laughs> she sure was. Oh. You know who won't let her forget it? Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. So well, did, did you go, which, which direction did you go in with Audrey Hepburn? So I thought, I thought of a very short one right before this episode, but I had written this down much earlier and wasn't in the mood to try to think of somebody else. She was in like one of her last movies was Robin and Marion with Sean Connery, who was in Russia House. Okay. I was just like, if Michael knows that one, he'll jump on that. Mm-hmm. But then the other one I thought about, there's some pretty quick connections to both of her Sabrina co-stars between Bogart and William Holden. Yeah. So that that was the other direction I had thought about. I went in the Roman Holiday direction at first with Gregory Peck. Sure. And I was like, oh, no, it was again, I think with Agnes Moorhead or maybe a few times ago where it's like, no, I'm going back further and further and further to go back a little bit more. <laughs> We cannot wind up in the 30s. That is the wrong direction. <laughs> I could feel I was like, well, I'm going in the wrong direction again. Let's steer me back, steer me back, steer me back. <laughs> Go to the 60s, Michael. Go to the 60s. Um, so mine for you, mm-hmm. I realize we're doing a bit of a West Wing connection. So I'm, you are getting um, from Toby Ziegler to CJ Craig. I'm giving you Alice and Janney today. Mm. We haven't done Alice and Janney yet. You'd think we would have by now, but we haven't. Okay. Um, oh, baby, no. Um, I was going to con- <laughs> I was going to connect her to somebody by a hairspray, but she is in hairspray with Michelle. Oh shit! <laughs> Just like how we do, like we did, like Laura Dern a few times uh, ago. And I'm like, oh shit, Laura Dern's in this movie. Oh, I had the okay. same thought when Mary Steenburgen showed up on the stand. I was just like, I know I've given Michael Mary Steenburgen before. <laughs> Devil child. Devil child. How can we forget? Um, yep, you totally did, like, about 10 episodes ago. Yeah, right? I thought I had. Okay. Darn, darn, darn. Okay. Okay, let me see. It really was. I was just like, well, Allison Janney's in Drop Dead Gorgeous with Kirstie Alley, and Kirstie Alley's in that movie with John Travolta, who's in Hairspray. But wait. <laughs> like, oh. Oh. Um, uh, just because I'm looking at it from on my DVD shelf. Um, could we connect? Um, can you connect Mahershala Ali? Yeah. Just try to trying to think which movie to connect him to. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this is this is the stupidest path I could have come up with, but oh well. Um, Michelle is into Jillian with Freddie Prince Jr who is in Scooby-Doo with Linda Cardellini, who is in Green Book with Mahershala Ali. Oh, she sure is. But you know what? We should we should talk about Linda Cardellini and Scooby-Doo. We should talk about Linda Cardellini, period. Yeah. So it may be a stupid route, but it's important. 
Yeah, I literally was, because, I mean, obvious first stops from Moonlight and Green Book. I'm just like, okay, we've got Naomi Harris. We've got Janelle Monet. Like, who the fuck else was in Green Book? Oh, Linda Cardellini. Huh, there we go. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, no wonder. I was like, no wonder. It's like, why haven't we done Allison Janney yet? Well, no wonder. <laughs> because she is what in a Michelle Pfeiffer movie. What do you think? Why <laughs> they? Well, you know what? I That is the perfect note to end on, I feel. So Pfeiffer fans, that means this has been another episode of Pfeiffer Fridays. I'm Jerry Downey, and you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at jerrydowney913. And I'm Michael McLean, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Michael D. McLean. You can find updates about the podcast by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pfeiffer Fridays. And please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast channel is. It makes us easier to find so we can continue to spread the Michelle gospel to one and all. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you again next week for Pfeiffer Fridays. You think you got the market cornered on human suffering? Let me tell you something about people like me. People like me feel lost and little and ugly and dispensable. People like me have husbands screwing someone else far more perfect than me. People like me have sons who hate them. <laughs> <laughs>